How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are ready to study the Word, focus, and put our attention on on the Lord and what He has to teach us this evening. Scripture teaches that we need to make sure that we are always walking by the Spirit. When we sin, that relationship is broken and it's recovered by simply confessing or admitting our sin to God, and uh, we're instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful we can come together this evening to focus upon your word. Father, tonight we come and we especially want to remember the Beaver family because uh, this morning... Uh, Bob's brother went to be with you, and uh, also this morning, Roberta's father went to be with you. And so we want to pray for them, pray for their opportunities to be a testimony during this time, uh, especially at the the funerals, and that they may be able to clarify the gospel to uh, those they spend time with during their, their time back with their families. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might be focused upon you, and that as we continue to go through various attacks upon Christianity as our culture shifts further and further away from biblical truth. In fact, uh, more and more, those who hold to biblical truth are viewed as the enemy. And we pray that you would uh, just give us strength. May we be grace-oriented towards those who oppose us, and may we be diligent in our responsibilities as citizens in this nation to stand firm, to be involved, and to communicate with our leaders in a gracious and clear manner to encourage them along the right path. Father, tonight as we study your word, help us to be reminded of how great you are and how necessary it is for us to walk in dependence upon you at all times. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week we went on a great little trip, one I have been wanting to go on for about... 35 or 40 years, I think Dr. Steve Austin, who some of you know, uh, because he spoke here at the Chafer Conference about six or seven years ago, uh, I think that was about the first time he took one of those trips through the Grand Canyon. And if it wasn't him, it was somebody else with with the Institute for Creation Research. And from the very first time I heard of a group going on a raft trip through the canyon, not just for the sake of going on a raft trip, because that was something that I would like to do just in and of itself. I have always loved uh, whitewater. And uh, back, some of you don't know this, but when I was uh, young, when I went, grew up going to Camp Penile, once you were 14, you could no longer be a cabin camper. And they had adventure camps. And the adventure camp was basically canoe trips. And they used to run three or four canoe trips down the Colorado River uh, up uh, above Lake Buchanan, putting in at a little little wide spot on the river called Bend, Texas, just west of Lampasas, and there was about a 70-mile run down to the Buchanan Dam. And I went on those every summer, and then Mike Turnage, 
uh, who is the, um, uh, I guess, the father-in-law of Larry Hannish. The Hannishes have come here. And anyway, um, Mike got brain cancer and brain tumor in about 72, and I took over for him. So for about another four or five years, I ran those, about four or five trips. In other places, we went up to the Rio Grande and a lot of other places, but I always loved doing whitewater. So this trip was a real flashback for me. There were a lot of similarities. The one similarity that had faded in memory was the fact that when you're doing a river trip, unless you're in some, some uh, on the Colorado River, we only camped on one sandbar, but most of the time you're camping on sandbars. And if you've ever camped on the beach, you've discovered that's not the brightest thing to do. As one person on the trip put it, uh, Sean said, we were sandblasted and power washed. And that's a pretty good description of, of, the, of the trip. The uh, rapids would run, they classify them differently on the Grand Canyon, uh, but they would be, most of them would be classified as a class four rapid. Maybe one might approach a class five, and they were, they were pretty, pretty fun. And if you were in the front of the, the raft, these were motor-powered rafts that are 36 feet long and about, I would say, about 15 feet wide. And you carried everything with you. All of your gear were in dry bags. You had all the food for the week, everything, and everything you packed in, including what was ever inside of you, you also packed out in their little porta, porta potty. That, and they had one of those for each day, and they would load that onto the boat. And, and uh, we would carry that back, and then they take that to a septic system afterwards. Everybody always wants, wanted to, has asked me, well, what do you do about the bathroom facilities? And that's changed a lot. If you were a camper 40 years ago, you just went out and dug a latrine, but you can't do that, especially in a national park anymore. So you have to pack out everything you pack in, and they mean everything. So it was quite a bit of fun. It was especially fun to listen to Dr. Austin. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the things that we learned. I'm just now uh, <clears throat> processing getting off of all the little microcards and everything, the videos and pictures that I took, and so I haven't even had enough time to, to think through that, and I'm already in the mode where I'm focusing on the Chafer Conference that starts next week. And so I'm, I'm just trying to get this stuff cleaned up a little bit. And I hope to give, do a two or three lesson special on the Grand Canyon and the Noahic Flood sometime around the end, end of the summer. But during the summer, I'll show you a few little videos and pictures along the way just to reflect on things. Uh, we didn't see any scorpions. We saw some ants, but they weren't the biting kind. They were the I'm looking for food kind. And we saw two rattlesnakes. Uh, one, of, one of them was seen on the trail to the Groover. That's the fun little name they gave the uh, latrine. And, the, uh, <clears throat> and, and uh, John's sister saw that one. And then there was a, another one, 10-year-old boy that was on the trip, stepped over another one. I don't think the snake ever knew he was there because he was already stretched out across the trail and never coiled or anything. They got a nice little picture of him, which I'll show you when I get the picture. But that was... Uh, that was uh, some of the excitement on the trip. One night, we, had, we like we were making camp in a sandstorm, and that's always fun. That always tests your spiritual maturity, your focus on the Lord, and your ability to use 1 John 1, 9 every 1.5 seconds. 
that was uh, that that was that was a challenge. We had a little Bible study that I led every morning. Mostly, I was going through things related to the flood, Second Peter three, uh, Genesis six through nine, uh, passages like that. A few Psalms that relate to tectonic events that took place, and so we were connecting those. We had the Lord's table one uh, one morning up one of the side canyons, and that was a meaningful and significant time. And then we took a couple of day hikes. Temperature along the river was really rather comfortable. The water temperature of the river was about 50 degrees coming out of uh, Lake Powell, and it doesn't warm up but a little bit by the time we got out at the end of the 187-mile trek. It was so when you're down on in in the raft going along the river, it's it's rather comfortable. You have a nice breeze blowing. And that would keep blow that cool air off of the water, and that kept you comfortable until you hit a rapid, and then you would um, really get a chance to experience the um, uh, experience thing. So I thought I would show a brief little. This is about a minute and a half. We're going through Serpentine Falls. This was probably the second or third most uh, powerful rapids that we went through, and somehow film just doesn't capture. Everything that went on, even the grandeur of the canyon, you just can't shrink it uh, to a uh, can't shrink it down and really capture it when you're looking at it on film. But you'll get a little bit of the idea. Oh, Eddie, I'm plugging in the sound. You just have to hear the sound on these things. Okay, I'm not hearing any sound. You got the sound on, Eddie? No, yeah, it is. Oh, the video's not. You're right. Okay. We're going to do this. Maybe I've just been sitting there since Sunday, so... Uh, Try this again. This looks that may be a different one. This is serpentine. No, this is it. No, we're powered. We got a, a motor in the back. The front was called the bathtub for obvious reasons. That was powerful. That was quite, quite a force. Anyway, that, that's an idea. I've got a lot of them that look like that, so I'll just try to pick out some of the, 
some of the more adventurous ones, but that was um, that was quite quite a thrill. But what was uh, the most significant of all was just listening to Steve talk about the the geology of the of the uh, Grand Canyon, how it was formed from a model of looking at it from a biblical perspective that this was the result of a catastrophic event uh, during the time or following the time of the flood. And this really creates a totally different perspective. And one thing nice about Steve is he's published a number of peer-reviewed articles in, uh, geolo- in uh, geologic or in, in journals for geology that have been peer-reviewed by evolutionists, and he's had an impact in moving the debate away from where it was in the 70s, where most geologists were still teaching that the, that the canyon was formed over millions of years through gradual erosion, and now it's pretty much understood by a lot of geo- evolutionary geologists even that it was formed through some catastrophe. Now, they would say it was several different catastrophes, six or seven different catastrophes, whereas biblically we would say it was the result of one catastrophe that was related to the Noahic flood. When you look at Genesis 6 to 8, it describes the fact that the windows of heaven were open and the fountains of the deep burst forth. And that description of the fountains of the deep would describe tremendous tectonic activity that radically changed the world from what it was before the flood to what it is is now. And this probably eventuated after the flood in a continental drift, which is probably rapid, not gradual, as well as a number of other things. So you'd have had massive earthquakes, volcanoes, all manner of different kinds of uh, catastrophic events that helped to lay down all of the sediment. So I'll get into that later on, but I just wanted to give you a little taste of uh, what we went through. And we went through rapids like that quite quite frequently through through the whole trip. Uh, John and his most of his family were along on the trip and a number of other people. We had some folks who were uh, regular live streamers who heard about the announcement uh, on Live from the, watching the Chafer Conference and signed up, and so we had a, a good good uh, a mix of people. Bill Wright, who's usually here on Thursday night, was here there with his uh, son and two grandsons. So it was uh, there were several family groups that were there. There were probably about four families that were there that made up uh, uh, the most most of the trip. Okay, we're in First Samuel chapter two, First Samuel chapter two, and we are. Moving like lightning through this uh, this particular psalm. Tonight we probably won't get much beyond verse 3. There's just so much packed into the psalms as a whole as well as a psalm like this. And I find it fascinating to be able to study and to drill down into each of these segments to come to an understanding of what's encapsulated here. Just one point of application we see here that should be true to one degree or another with all of us as believers. Obviously, we're not going to be writing any psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as Hannah was, but God the Holy Spirit isn't revealing this to her in sort of a vacuum where she doesn't think about what's been going on and she just gets sort of this information dump from the Holy Spirit and she writes that. 
the process of inspiration, as I understand it, is that the author would be thinking and reflecting upon the events in their life. This would especially be true in the Psalms. The events in their life and using the doctrine that's in their own soul. And then when they wrote about it, that writing was overseen by God the Holy Spirit. There may be some uh, revelation, new information disclosed by God to the writer of Scripture during that time, but the writer of Scripture would be writing under the uh, guidance of God the Holy Spirit, protecting them from uh, writing anything erroneous or in the original, and then there may be disclosure of new information, which I think is clear from this this particular prayer, as I pointed out when we get to the end, she clearly has a messianic focus. And I think when we look at this whole event, what Hannah does is something that we can do in perhaps a less uh, dynamic way, and that is to relate the the microcosm of the of the suffering, the difficulties, the testing that she's gone through, and she relates that to the overall scope of the plan of God in history so that she sees her struggle, her difficulty, her testing as a barren woman as not just something she's going through. She doesn't have this this uh, self-absorbed focus that we often see with a lot of Christians. In fact, one of the problems I've seen with a lot of Christians is they even get self-absorbed about their spiritual growth. I just I got to go to Bible class 18 times a week so that I can grow spiritually, and it's all about my spiritual growth. And and you know the spiritual growth is a means to an end, and that's to serve the Lord. So it's never about you. It's never about me. Even my spiritual growth isn't about me. It's about the Lord. And so we have to make sure that we don't let arrogance easily seep in, and it so and it so easily does. And this is how legalism develops: is because arrogance slips into what are originally uh, very noble, virtuous motives and a desire to study the Word, to know God, and before long, it so easily shifts from I want to know about God to I better make sure I grow spiritually. And so it becomes all about me and my spiritual growth. And I've heard Christians talk in such a way that I'm thinking they just don't realize how arrogant they sound when they're excluding everything else in life that involves application of doctrine just so they can sit and go to Bible class. And that can become a problem. Uh, Unfortunately, on the other end of the spectrum, we have a whole lot of Christians in this country who are so distracted by the world and the cares of the world that they don't ever take the time to submit to the teaching of God's Word. And so their their arrogance manifests in a different way. Now, as we have seen, this poem begins with a focus on God providing the victory for Hannah. It is a victory uh, hymn of, of praise, focusing on God's provision of a son to Hannah. In the first verse, the focus is on how God has given her victory. In the second verse, it, the focus is on the uh, in comparability of God, that he is totally unique. Just to remind us, we have a general structure here where we have three three verses at the beginning that focus on the sovereignty of God. Then verses 4 and 5 talk about how that sovereignty of God uh, erupts, that spell with an I and not an E, 
erupt is one thing, irrupt is something else. It goes into human history. God penetrates human history, and he changes things. And he overrides the plans of mankind, and he interferes with what man wants to do out of his arrogance. That's covered in verses 4 and 5. Then we return to the theme of God's sovereignty in verses 6 and 7. Again, a reference to God overriding the plans of man in the beginning of verse 8. A return to God's sovereignty, and then she comes to this conclusion related to how all of this fits God's plan to provide a Messiah in, in human history. So in verse 1, she rejoices in the Lord. The focus here is on rejoice, as you see in the way I've color-coded this verse. Uh, rejoice, she exalts the idea, I open my mouth at my enemies, is that she's declaring her victory over her enemies, that kind of an idea. And then including c- concluding in her joy at her uh, deliverance. Salvation there is not related to spiritual uh, salvation, related to either justification, sanctification, or ultimate glorification. It's related to deliverance from her problem. And the problem was the fact that she was barren and unable to give birth. So the first verse focuses on God as the source of our joy and our deliverance from the problems and adversities of life. He is the source of our strength in oppression. No matter what we're facing, God is the answer. No matter what the ultimate question is or what the ultimate problem is, God is always, always the answer. Now, in the third line of that first verse, she says, My horn is exalted by God. I want to look at that word a minute because sometimes another word is translated exalted, and that's the word that we find being translated as as proudly in verse 3. Exalted... Here is the Hebrew word room, and that is, uh, that's the word that also indicates being exalted, but it doesn't have the, the figurative sense of pride and arrogance, which our word in verse 3 will have. Verse 2 focuses on the holiness of God. Now, I did some work on this today just to see what some various Bible, um, Lexicons, Hebrew lexicon said, and some dictionaries said about about uh, holiness. And there are two there are two nuances that are usually emphasized on holiness. One is moral purity. I've always had trouble with this. It may be a secondary idea in some passages, especially in the Psalms, where holy is parallel to righteousness and justice. But the core meaning. The basic root meaning of kadash, the word translated holy, kadash is the verb form, means to be set apart to the service of God or set apart to God. And thus it carries as its primary meaning the idea of being distinct or unique. And that sticks because one of the variants, one of the cognates of kadash, a a masculine form of the noun, is, as well as a feminine form of the noun, are used to describe the temple prostitutes in the uh, fertility religions. And they were, they were obviously immoral, but their bodies were set apart to the service of their God. That's just that their certain way they were serving their God was through immorality. So here we see in the parallelism, in the first line says, no one is holy like our God. And then in the, in the, 
uh, synonymous line, there is none beside you. What's the main idea in that second line? Uniqueness. God's one of a kind. So we see that the meaning for holy here, as seen in the synonymous parallel, is that God is unique. He is distinct. He is one of a kind. And so uh, this emphasizes his incomparability. He is one of a kind. And this is stated many times in the Old Testament. We looked at these last time passages like Leviticus 11.44 and 11.45, which are quoted in 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy. This is a true statement and a command that is brought over into the New Testament. We are to live our lives as set apart to God. Another word that you have in English that's, that's a translation for part of this word group is consecrated. And consecrated has that idea. These are old words with religious, they just drip with religious overuse, and most people don't know what, what they mean, but they even the word consecrated is defined as sacred. Now, I clarified things for you, didn't it? And both of them, though, go back to the idea of that which is set apart to the service of God. So, Israel was called to be set apart to the service of God. We're called to be set apart to the service of God. That's the purpose of Romans 12, 12, 1, and 2. And then I pointed out that in the last line, God is ascribed the attribute of immutability, steadfastness, faithfulness. And it's all done through the metaphor of the term rock. Using the Hebrew word sur, it just refers to a, a large rock. And this is used several times, as I pointed out last time in Deuteronomy 32. He's the, he is the rock. Deuteronomy 32.15, the rock of his salvation. Deuteronomy 32.30, unless the rock had sold them. Uh, Second Samuel, here's a good picture from the Grand Canyon. I saw these as we were going down the river, and I thought, that's a picture for a slide on the rock. (laughs) For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. Then in Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is using this imagery. We have the image up there of this massive, massive rock that can't be moved. It can't be knocked down, it is steadfast and immovable, and so that is the point of comparison between this rock and God. He is our our defense. So, with that as reminder, let's look at verse 3. In verse 3, the focus shifts from God to the arrogance of man, to the arrogance of man, and Hannah says, to no one specifically, but to her audience in general, talk no more so very proudly. She uses an imperatival sense here, talk no more and let no arrogance come from your mouth. So this is her admonition. Arrogant man is admonished concerning his behavior before the omniscient sovereign God. So the first two lines are an admonition against man, against being arrogant, 
And then the reason for the admonition is given in the second two lines because we're answerable to God. He is the God of knowledge, and he knows all things, and by him actions are weighed. We live in a world where there is accountability. This is one of the issues in the reason that unbelievers adopt a their own origin story. Every, every civilization has had some sort of origin story. You have to decide where you came from before you know much about where you're going. And if you didn't come from anything, then you're not going to anything. And when you are the product of time plus chance plus nothing... And human beings just are an accident where some, at some point a protoplasmic mass was just, uh, this goo was just struck by an electrical charge and magically uh, organic life developed. And then from simple organic life to complex life, then there's no accountability. Life is just going to go on and on and on. Evolution says everything's going to get better and better in every way until there may be some natural disaster and something else comes along. But basically, the universe is constantly improving itself as if it has a mind. And uh, those who hold to these various pagan views that reject uh, the eternity of God are always trying to ascribe per- real personality to non, uh, non um, or, or rather they're ascribing uh, intelligence and personality to just plain matter that has no uh, being or life in and of itself and no no intelligence because they can't escape it. That's just one of those little things that's inside them as part of their God consciousness that they're image bearers of God that they keep trying to excuse me keep trying to suppress in unrighteousness, and so that is a result of arrogance. Arrogance leads us to reject God and to try to put something in God's place. Everybody has a God. It may be the God of, uh, of everlasting matter that somehow exploded uh, billions and billions of years ago, or it may be a God of metal, wood, uh, stone, or uh, jewels, or it may be a God of uh, intellectual, uh, some kind of intellectual uh, idolatry, But there's always something that people worship. If you remove God from the center, then something fills that particular background. So in this situation, let's think about what has been going on here in in Hannah's life. She has been living with her husband, Elkanah. Uh, She has not been able to uh, give birth. She's not been able to have a child. So uh, he has... Uh, married a second wife, Penina, uh, in order to have children, in order to have heirs to pass on his property, his inheritance, as this was the way the families operated at that time uh, in Israel. And rather than looking to the fertility gods to find solutions to her problem, Hannah turns to God. But part of her problem is that her rival, her enemy, and the word there in the Hebrew, as we saw, could be translated either way, her enemy is Penina, who is ridiculing her. She's a scoffer. Uh, the scoffer is always the evil person in the scripture. She's ridiculing Hannah. She's belittling her. She's uh, showing her a lot of disrespect. And so uh, Penina is clearly operating on arrogance. So the immediate uh, person that is the arrogant one that this would refer to would be Penina, but it has a broader 
uh, application. She talks generally to those who anyone who is arrogant toward God because God is the one who gives victory over the details of life, so no one has the right to be arrogant. And she says in that first line, talk no more so very proudly. Now, this is an interesting construction in the Hebrew. There's actually a double use of the same adjective. And the adjective is gavoa, which means to be high, to be exalted, to be raised up. It's even used in one passage of the uh, high, the high flight, the elevated flight of a bird. So this is the uh, literal meaning. This word and its cognates, that means the adjectives, the nouns, the uh, verbs that are built off the same root in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, uh, is used many, many times in a legitimate sense, in the basic literal sense of that which is high or, or lifted up. Positively, it also describes someone of dignity. It's used to describe God as exalted, as the exalted one. So it has a positive sense. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, which is a phrase for the Messiah, as one who will be exalted. That's that word room that I mentioned earlier from verse 1 where Hannah says, my horn is exalted, that's that word, uh, the servant will be exalted, room, and lifted up, nasa, and he will be very high, gava. So that shows that this word can have a very positive sense. It refers in places to the growing of a tree, the growing of a vine, the heavens that are exalted are lifted up above the earth. Uh, it talks about Saul, who's taller than any of his people, so it has a literal meaning that is not with uh, that does not have any negative negative connotations, but uh, most often it is used in a figurative sense to describe arrogance and pride. For example, in Psalm 138 verse six, we read, "Though the Lord is on high, the Lord's lifted up; yet He regards the lowly, but the proud." He knows from afar. That's our word there, the proud. So it's used uh, to, it's a word, uh, sort of a synonymous word that's used here to bring out the idea that the Lord is the one who is on high, but the high person, the person that thinks he's lifted up or lifts up himself, is the one that God knows from afar. He stays away from it. Proverbs 14.3, in the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. New American Standard says it's a rod on your back. That's the implication of the statement, a disciplinary action. But the cause of that disciplinary action is what is literally stated in the Hebrew. It is a rod of pride. Uh, But the lips of the wise will preserve them. So the first line is an admonition to keep your mouth shut and not to express things in arrogance and in pride. The second line is a synonymous parallel stating the same thing with slightly different words, saying, let no arrogance come from your mouth. And here we have the Hebrew word atach, meaning arrogance. And we find this used rarely in the the scripture. And in three examples, which are most of the examples of this word being used in the sense of arrogance, it is associated with speech. 
Psalm 31.18 says, Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. So that's the word arrogantly. Psalm 75.5, Do not lift up your horn on high. In other words, don't exalt yourself. Do not speak with insolent pride. That's our word, atak. Psalm 94.4, they pour forth words. They speak arrogantly, atak. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. So it's interesting how this word is connected to boasting, to someone who is speaking proudly and contemptuously um, in terms of their arrogance. Now, in the second half of this um, of this strophe, we have a warning. It says, For the Lord is the God of knowledge. Why should you keep your mouth shut and not boast and be arrogant? Because God is omniscient, and by him actions are weighed. Accountability is coming. This is seen in passages such as Isaiah thirteen eleven. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible." God makes war against the arrogant. This is expressed twice in the New Testament. It's, it's expressed in uh, James uh, chapter 4, I think it's uh, about 4, 11 or 12, and it's expressed in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses uh, uh, 5 and 6, I believe. I will punish the world for its evil. God is going to hold us accountable. Now, what's brought out here is a focus on the character, the attributes of God. So we are reminded of the essence box. We think about God as sovereign. He rules over the universe. That's the backdrop for the entire psalm. But it's bringing out the fact that God rules in a righteous manner. He is the standard of governance for the universe. The righteousness of God is the standard by which he judges all things. His justice is true because it's based upon an absolutely perfect righteous standard. It is, he, God is also truth or veracity so that what he says is absolutely true and he is omniscient. He knows all the knowable, everything possible. Nothing escapes God. Nothing we do escapes God. He knows every action. He knows every thought. He knows every motive. It's impossible to pull the wool over God's eyes. You know where we got that phrase, that idiom, pull the wool over God's, pull the wool over anybody's eyes? That's a great, uh, a great idiom. We talk about idioms and slang and things like that. Well, back in the 1600s, 1700s, and even into the, some of the early 1800s and up to the, up to modern times, British judges wear wigs. Back in the 1600s, 1700s, gentlemen in England wore wigs and judges wore wigs. And that, even though the practice among the men died out by the early 1800s, the practice of judges wearing wigs uh, continued. And the wigs were made out of wool. And they were referred to sometimes with just the slang as wearing the wool. So if you pulled the wool over somebody's eyes, that was uh, tantamount to pulling a judge's wig down over his eyes so he couldn't see the truth, so he couldn't see what was going on. So it's an idiom for deceiving someone. So we can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He will always see the truth. And we will not get away with what we think we can get away with. This is the warning 
uh, for Hannah. So this introduces us to the doctrine of arrogance, and I thought I would just take a few uh, moments to review about six or seven points on the doctrine of arrogance. Arrogance is extremely important to study in the Scriptures. First of all, let's define arrogance. Arrogance is the promotion of self rather than obedience to God. It is asserting our will over God's will. It is fundamentally saying, I'm the one who determines what's best for my life, not God. It is the assertion of our own desires over God's desires. And the very first expression of sin in the universe was an expression of arrogance, the five I wills of Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14, 13 through 14, express uh, Lucifer's original sin. And it's idolatry, I mean, it's uh, arrogance. For you have said in your heart, now heart is a term in Hebrew as well as in Greek that refer to, sometimes it's a synonym for the soul, Sometimes it's, it's a synonym for the mentality or the thinking part of the soul. On a few occasions, it has, seems to have a reference to emotion, but it has to do with what is going on uh, deep in the center of a person. That's the idea of the word heart. The word heart is a reference to the organ is only used one or two times in the scripture. Generally, it's used uh, figuratively or metaphorically as the center of something. So when, uh, when we read this, we learn, first of all, that arrogance is a thought sin. It's a mental attitude sin. It takes place inside. It's not an overt sin or a sin of the tongue, even though it is the root sin that's the sin of everything else. Satan says, I will ascend into heaven. First, I will. Uh, ascending into heaven means going to the throne of God. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God is a reference to the angels. They're referred to many times as stars. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. This is a position of rulership or judgment. The congregation would be the angels. On the farthest side of the north, this is an allusion to uh, the mythology in the area uh, north in what we now call Syria, and part of the mythology there that the all like in Greece you had Mount Olympus and all the gods congregated on Mount Olympus. There was a mountain in Syria and all of their gods uh, assembled on that mountain. It was in the north, and so that's an allusion to that. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north is when all the gods and goddesses come together. I'm going to be the one to rule over them. In other words, all of the angels. And then he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. This again is an allusion to angelic hosts. Clouds is sometimes used to refer to angels. And then he concludes with the final I will. I will be like the most high. Satan said, I'm going to be God. That is arrogance. I will. I will do what I want to do. Second point we see is that arrogance is referred to also as pride or self-sufficiency, and this describes the basic orientation of the sin nature. Now, the sin nature is one of the most interesting things to take time to meditate on and to think about, especially with reference to to our own actions and the motives of our own actions. 
because all of us are born spiritually dead, and that which energizes us is our sin nature. And we are all sinners by birth. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2.1. And so we need to learn something about the sin nature. When you were born, you were born in corruption. I was born in corruption. Everything was affected by Adam's original sin. We were born under the penalty of sin, which is spiritually death, spiritual death. We were born spiritually dead, and we had no real life. We just had biological life. And it looked like we were alive, but because we were spiritually dead, we really weren't that much alive. And everything that we do in life up to the point that we are saved is the product of our sin nature. Can you tell me if not, because some people want to disagree with me on that, what other nature would your actions and thoughts and deeds come from if it's not coming from your sin nature? That's the only nature that was there. So, as we look at that, we, we can learn several things. First of all, your basic orientation from the time you came out of the womb is expressed in from that first cry on that, Hello, everybody. It's all about me. It's all about me for a long time. And if you have good parents, they will try to disabuse you of that notion from the get-go. If they're a little slow on catching on, then they're really going to have a battle on their hands because we learn how to twist people around our little fingers very easily. And we start off with this self-absorption, and we are skilled. By the time we get old enough to articulate anything, we're already in control of our environment and trying to get everybody to do what we want them to do. We begin to master manipulation, and we've got embedded habits of arrogance already before that little baby even begins to talk. Some parents get the idea that they shouldn't discipline their children until they're old enough to talk to them. If you wait until they're old enough to talk, you have lost the battle. The grade you get for parenting is F, meaning failure. You don't, it's not a pass-fail system. It is an F for failure because part of what we're to do as parents is to drive out or to teach discipline to those sinful lusts, to teach control. And if they don't start learning self-control from an early age, meaning uh, one or two days, and and even though they don't exercise it, you don't see it a whole lot. As you just slap, you know, quietly tap them on the fanny, they start getting the message, and that there are negative consequences for bad actions, and you just reinforce that. Of course, what I just said was probably illegal in five or six states now, and may be illegal in the whole country before long. Uh, many people today think that is child abuse. That is why their their children are abusers of society. But that's another issue. Now, what happens with this uh, arrogant absorption is that it feeds our lusts. It's all about satisfying our lusts. Some of those lusts are related to basic human needs, such as uh, the fact that I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need to drink, and I need to go to the potty. You know, those are the basic needs that happen when you're a little kid in diapers. And you want those needs met. And so you learn that if you scream loud enough or if you're grumpy enough that somebody's going to take care, figure out what's going on. But as you get a little more advanced, those lusts express in different ways. 
Now, this one nature learns how to do relatively good things, and it also learns how to do things that are evil. So we call the relatively good things human good. Jesus said to his disciples on more than one occasion, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your to people. You being evil know how to give good gifts to people. He, what he's expressing there is the core nature of every human being is evil. That's the core difference between somebody who is politically and theologically liberal and someone who is politically and theologically conservative. And if you are a, a if you believe man is basically evil or that he needs controls put on him and you're not a conservative, then you need to straighten out. If you are, are, are a conservative and you don't believe man is basically evil, then you need to switch sides. Uh, they, that's the core issue. Read the first chapter of the opening preface in Thomas Sowell's book, Conflict of Visions, where he traces this historically in politics. Man is basically evil, and we have to understand. That doesn't mean he can't do good things. The Bible says he's basically evil, but he knows how to do relatively good things. But you have to have controls through government to control the evil. And this is why uh, absolute power uh, dis- uh Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and why we have to have controls, checks, and balances. And have you noticed how people are attacking the congregation, I mean the Constitution, on the issues related to the checks and balances between the the Supreme Court, the legislature, and the executive branch? There's always been a fight, a tussle, a tension between them, but they're just getting downright nasty about it. And the Supreme Court thinks that they're they are not subject to checks and balances. They think that they are the check and balance. And this is also a problem with judicial dictatorship. So we have to be careful. We are teetering on the edge of the collapse due to the fact that that things generally always run downhill. So people can do good things, but they can't do perfect righteousness. They can't do that which God approves of. And then they also commit sins in three areas, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. Now, those trends are fun because we trend in two directions. One is a trend that is related to human good. We trend towards asceticism. Asceticism is, God, I'm going to impress you by giving things up for you. I'm going to become more and more moral. I'm going to be a little Miss Goody Two-Shoes, and you're going to think I'm great. You're going to be Pollyanna's uh, what, what was her aunt? Aunt Polly. If you do good, go to the liberal Methodist church. Notice that's part of the backdrop of that story. Then you can work your way to heaven. Liberal Methodists believe man is basically good. and But that leads to moral degeneracy. Leads to moral degeneracy like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very moral, but they were degenerate. They were arrogant. Arrogance always produces degeneracy. It can produce moral degeneracy in the area of human good or immoral degeneracy. These would be the the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners that Jesus hung out with. I generally find that people who are really honest about how sinful they are and recognize how sinful they are and they err in this particular area where they're licentious, lascivious, and antinomian, they know that they can only be saved by grace. The hard nuts to crack are the ones that are on the moral ascetic side. They think that somehow they've impressed God 
They've been good enough. They've given a lot of money. They've been involved in social causes. They've been involved in uh, helping people out in their community. They're well thought of. They're honest. They're, they, 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 they're helpful. All of these other things. But God says it's not good enough. It's good. Thank you very much. But it's not good enough because it's still motivated by your own arrogance. And that has tainted everything. If you're a moral degenerate, though, you know that you need Jesus. But if you're, uh, if, you're a, if you're an immoral degenerate, if you're a moral degenerate, you don't think you need Jesus because you're good enough. And so it's hard to get them to realize they need the gospel. So that's the thrust of the sin nature. Now, the third thing is that humility in the scripture is the opposite of arrogance. If arrogance is self-dependence, then humility is going to be related to God dependence. And what we see here is that humility is truly submission to the authority of God. It's not just avoiding the appearance of arrogance. That's pseudo-humility. Pseudo-humility, you want to act meek and mild and gentle, but it's still generated by me, 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 arrogance. So arrogance is the assertion of our own authority over against God's authority. One of the most fascinating verses in the Bible is Numbers 12.3, which states that the man Moses was very humble. He was the most humble of all people, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. But he's not a mild little man. He's not being run over day in and day out by those three million Jews that he's leading through the wilderness. They are constantly rebelling against him, and he stands his ground. Because he recognizes that he is the servant of God and he is under the authority of God. So a person who is, is humble is a person who is properly oriented to the authorities that are set over them. Uh, so arrogance is basically the assertion then of our own authority against God's, whereas humility is submitting to God's uh, guidance. Uh, passages that emphasize this, Proverbs 29:23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit, the person who is authority-oriented to God, will retain honor. So Proverbs 11:2, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Now remember, the key to wisdom in Scripture is what? Remember our study in Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is submission to God's authority. So when pride comes, there comes shame, but with humble is wisdom. Humility is related to the fear of the Lord. If humility brings wisdom and the fear of the Lord brings wisdom, then humility and the fear of the Lord are correlative. They, they relate to one another. Now, I want you to notice in the 13, Proverbs 13.10, the last verse up there says, when pride comes, uh, by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Now, notice how that last phrase in verse 10 and the last phrase in verse 2 are identical. But in English, you have a difference between the word humble and the word well-advised. The person who's well-advised is somebody who submits to the authority of God and listens to God's word. It is relative to being humble, listening to God and doing what God says to do. That means, point number four, that arrogance, I mean, humility is a product of grace orientation. 
In arrogance, we think we do things to impress God, but in humility, we realize God has already done everything for us, and we have to learn to submit to his authority and do what he says to do. So that when we are oriented to grace, we submit to divine authority and the authorities that God established. A result of that mindset, the mindset of humility or mental attitude, produces a way of life, a mode of personal contact, con- uh, conduct that minimizes self-absorption, self-promotion, and self-dependence. It's not about us, it's about God. As such, we submit to authority so that in divine institution number one, let's have a little review. What's divine institution number one? Personal responsibility. Who's the authority we're answerable to? God. Divine institution two, the marriage. Who's the authority? The husband. Divine institution number three, the family. Who's the authority? The parents. Divine institution number four, The governing authorities, God establishes government with the covenant with Noah, and the authority is the governing authorities that God establishes within a nation. And then divine institution number five is nationalism over against internationalism. And again, what's the ultimate authority that the nations are accountable to? It's back to God again, just like divine institution number one. So under point number five, arrogance is always related to self-centered goals. It's all about me, all about doing what I want. These are our arrogant skills that start with self-absorption. Self-absorption, when you're absorbed with yourself, then you indulge yourself. I'm going to give in to all of my wants and all of my lusts. And that leads to self-justification. Now you justify your actions. That leads to self-deception. Because now we live in a fantasy world because we're suppressing truth and unrighteousness We're rejecting truth, substituting a fantasy or a lie for the truth, and that brings about uh, self-deception. And now that we're redefining what truth is, we have become God. That is exactly what is happening in the upper echelons of government leadership in this nation. As we're seeking to redefine marriage, uh, as we are, and speaking of arrogance, there was an article on the front page of the Chronicle this morning about a homosexual advocate who's been meeting with evangelical leaders. And he met with a group of leaders at Biola uh, uh, University in California, which is, Biola is an acronym for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he was meeting with them, and the article said, and, and I don't know whether this is a misrepresentation by the person who wrote the article or whether it just shows how sad the theological leadership is at the campus. He didn't sway them too much, but he said when they were talking about Sodom and Gomorrah that, according to the article, this this guy got them all to agree that the reason God punished Sodom and Gomorrah was for arrogance and greed, not for sodomy. Just to make sure I didn't miss something, I went back and I read Genesis 19 today, and then I looked up every reference to Sodom in the Bible, and not once are they indicted for arrogance and greed. Now, arrogance is clearly the root of the problem. Arrogance is the root of every sin. Uh, so the way it was expressed at Sodom was through sodomy, was through homosexuality, and that is exactly what God says is why he destroyed them was because of the evil of sodomy that was there. So, I don't know, everybody just uh, seems to have problems understanding what the Scripture actually says. 
So we have our arrogant skills, and then under point number six, I only have eight points, so we'll cover the last three very quickly. Humility as submission to God also rejects arrogance and arrogant speech. That's part of what our mental attitude should be. If I'm submitted to God, then I'm going to reject arrogance. I'm going to say no to arrogance, and I'm going to say no to uh, arrogant speech, to boasting. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord, remember the fear of the Lord is, is, is submission to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way. So all of the, those three, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, are all uh, brought into uh, view there as, as the core of evil. And the perverse mouth I hate. Perverse mouth is the arrogant mouth. So God hates that. So we should hate that. We should reject it uh, out of hand. Seventh point. Arrogance is a gateway sin to all manner of other sins. It's really the root of every sin, no matter what it is, but we'll look at some of the ones that are associated with it. It involves not only other mental attitude sins, such as jealousy, bitterness, vindictiveness, Revenge motivation, self-pity. I guess whining would be a sin of the tongue, so we'll add that to the next category. Self-pity produces whining. Whining comes from self-pity. Self-pity comes from arrogance. So self-pity, conceit, inordinate ambition and competition, and contempt for others. That, those are all mental attitude expressions of arrogance. Lying, boasting, whining, complaining, argumentativeness, slander, gossip, and maligning are all verbal manifestations of arrogance. And then physical assaults, a theft, adultery, murder, and just about every other overt sin you can think of comes from arrogance as well. Now, under point eight, just a warning, one of the most insidious forms of arrogance is pseudo-humility. There are a lot of unbelievers who can manifest a form of humility that masks their arrogance. Some people want to assert themselves by being brash and overt. Other people want to assert themselves by being, being covert. I think there's a word called, that psychobabalists use called passive-aggressive that sort of captures what I'm talking about here. Uh, that's what pseudo-humility is. Now, Romans 12.3, Paul says, For I say... Through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. That doesn't mean that you haven't had an adult beverage in a while. Thinking soberly is a word that means to think objectively, to think clearly, to think in terms of right and wrong, to think accurately. So, we're not to think more highly than we ought to think. We're not to think more lowly than we ought to think either. We are to think accurately about who we are. That's the idea of soberly. We're to have an objective assessment of who we are. We don't blow ourselves up, and we don't try to uh, become the poor little meek and mild and humble person that we think will impress everybody. We are not to be arrogant. Why? Because as Hannah says, there's accountability. As R.G. Lee titled one of the most famous sermons in American church history, Payday Someday. We liked that on, our, on this trip. They had this huge box 
of snacks. They had apples and oranges, and they had these big, huge Ziploc bags of Snickers. You could get them with almonds or the original with peanuts, and they had these huge bags of payday. So we talked about payday someday, every day, because we were also talking about the flood and judgment, so that worked in. So there is an evaluation ultimately. So we need to keep a guard on our mouth, keep a guard on our thinking, our arrogance. We need to confess it. We need to submit to the Lord, and God will be the one who exalts us. God makes war against the arrogant, Scripture says, and he lifts up the humble. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study uh, through this passage today. May we be reminded that we are all arrogant in many, many ways and that we need to recognize that, identify it, confess it. We need to, uh, through your word, solve that problem, through grace orientation, through humility, through authority orientation to your word, setting aside and rejecting that which is arrogant and looking towards that which uh, you approve of and, and humbling ourselves under your mighty hand. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.